Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Today we're going to travel back in low country history to explore the life story of a man who lived in the Charleston area in the 18th century and today is remembered by very few people. I'm talking about a man named Thomas Grimble, who was born in rural South Carolina in 1744 and died in Charleston in 1783. Never heard of him? Don't worry, you're not alone. Actually, I'd be more surprised if you had heard of him. Thomas Grimble was not a major figure in the history of South Carolina. He was not what you might call an ordinary man, but neither was he a remarkable figure. His life story is one of many untold but interesting biographies in the long history of our state, but it's one that piqued my interest. As part of a larger book project that I'm working on, I've spent a good bit of time over the past decade or so collecting details about the life of this Thomas Grimble from historic documents in archives here in the Charleston area and at the State Archive in Columbia. Today, this isn't the forum for trying to tell you the whole story of the book project. We'd need a few weeks for that narrative. Rather, today, I'd like to simply tell you Tom's story. And I did find documentation that at least one person called him Tom during the American Revolution. So sit back and set your time machine for the early days of South Carolina as we trace the brief but dramatic life story of Major Thomas Grimble of Charleston. We can trace the roots of the Grimble family in South Carolina back to the year 1682, when an English merchant named Paul Grimble immigrated to the colony with his family. Paul Grimble was apparently a man of some means and connections, for in 1683 he was appointed to the important office of Secretary of the Province of Carolina. In recognition of this status and the size of his household, which included several indentured servants, Paul Grimble received a land grant for nearly 1,600 acres on Edisto Island. There he built a large house, which unfortunately was burned and looted by Spanish invaders in the autumn of 1686. Despite this setback, the Grimble family prospered in Carolina and continued to acquire land in the area south of Charleston. Paul Grimble died in early 1696, leaving several children to continue the family into a new century. Paul's eldest son, Thomas Grimble, was born in England around the year 1674, and he inherited his father's estate on Edisto Island and continued to acquire lands in the area of Colleton County. Thomas's first wife was Elizabeth Adams, and the vast majority of Grimbles in 21st century South Carolina are descended from this couple. We know that Elizabeth died sometime before 1721, because in that year Thomas married Sarah Pert at St. Philip's Church in Charleston. Their marriage was rather brief, unfortunately, because Thomas Grimble died less than two years later in early 1723. The first Thomas Grimble of South Carolina and his wife Elizabeth Adams had a number of children, but for our story, we'll focus on the most obscure of these children, Thomas Grimble II. He was born sometime in the early years of the 18th century, but the exact date is unknown. In fact, most of his life is a mystery. Thomas Grimble II may have been born on or near Edisto Island, but he acquired land grants further inland and may have actually settled near the Coosahatchee River. The name of his first wife is lost, but I've uncovered the names of four of their children, Joseph, Anne, Mary, 
and another Thomas, who we'll call Thomas Grimble III, the subject of today's story. The paper trail of evidence for this branch of the Grimble family is exceedingly thin, but after extensive searching, I've been able to piece together a few details of young Tom's childhood. Thomas Grimble III was born sometime in the late spring of 1744, probably in Colleton County. His mother's name is lost, but it appears that she died sometime around the year 1750. Around that time, again, the exact date is lost, young Thomas and his younger brother, Joseph, were sent to Charleston to live with a distant relative by marriage, a wealthy merchant named Benjamin de Harriet. Born into a family of French Huguenot refugees in New York in the year 1701, Benjamin de Harriet settled in Charleston by 1725 and prospered. After marrying Anne Odingsell, a granddaughter of the first Paul Grimble, Benjamin de Harriet made a fortune in trade and acquired a number of plantations. The couple had no children of their own, but apparently they served as foster parents to several distant relations. By the early 1750s, Thomas Grimble III and his brother Joseph were living in the de Harriet household in Charleston, an extensive mansion that once stood at the southeast corner of Queen and Meeting Streets. When Anne de Harriet died in July of 1754, an obituary in the South Carolina Gazette called her, quote, a most affectionate wife and a tender mother to the otherwise motherless, end quote. A year later, Benjamin married a widow named Martha Fowler, and the Grimble boys had a new maternal figure in their lives. Around this time, Mr. de Harriet retired from commercial life to enjoy the fruits of his labors, but his health rapidly declined. Benjamin de Harriet made his last will and testament in January of 1756, and he died one month later. In his will, the childless de Harriet left the bulk of his estate to the 12-year-old Thomas Grimble. The young boy received all of de Harriet's wearing apparel, his library of French books, a gold watch, his best silver-hilted sword and pistols, and a suit of mourning clothes for young Tom and for his nurse, an enslaved mixed-race woman named Clorinda. Finally, de Harriet left Thomas a lump sum of 14,000 pounds South Carolina currency, which was to be invested and held in trust for Thomas's education until his 21st birthday. In 1756, that 14,000 pounds currency was worth approximately 2,000 pounds sterling. In today's money, that would be worth roughly $300,000. Thomas Grimble probably lived out the rest of the 1750s in Charleston with de Harriet's widow, Martha, who died in 1760. In that same year, Thomas turned 16, and his life changed dramatically. First, he began to serve as a clerk to a local attorney, William Burroughs, who was also master of the South Carolina Court of Chancery. As most apprentices did at that time, young Thomas probably lived with the Burroughs family in Trad Street while he studied law and assisted with clerical duties. Second, the 16-year-old Thomas was required to enroll in the local militia, as all boys his age had to do in colonial South Carolina. 
Through his connections to the elite families of Charleston, Thomas apparently joined the ranks of the Charleston Artillery Company, which was South Carolina's first uniform militia company and the state's first artillery unit. After five years of study and clerkship, and soon after his 21st birthday, Thomas Grimble III was admitted to the South Carolina Bar in early June 1765. Two weeks later, he married 20-year-old Mary Magdalene Prelo, and soon the young couple settled into an old Prelo family house in Church Street, just a few yards north of Broad Street. Through the rest of the 1760s, Thomas Grimble was an industrious and increasingly respectable member of local society. As a solicitor, his legal work dealt mainly with civil matters, debts, and chancery cases. He also served as a churchwarden and vestryman for St. Philip's Parish, and also as a commissioner of the markets and the workhouse in urban Charleston. He was socially active, joining first the South Carolina Society, then the Fellowship Society, and probably also the town's subscription concert organization, the St. Cecilia Society. By 1772, Thomas Grimble had worked his way through the ranks of the Charleston Artillery Company to become second lieutenant, the lowest-ranking commissioned officer of that elite militia unit. Besides their regular militia musters, at which they practiced firing their brass cannons, the Charleston Artillery Company paraded and fired salutes on every public holiday, such as the King's birthday and the arrival and the departure of the various royal governors of South Carolina. In October 1773, the government of South Carolina commissioned 29-year-old Thomas Grimble to be sheriff of Charleston District. This was a position of great responsibility, and it required a great deal of time and effort. The sheriff was responsible for overseeing a number of public operations, including the collection of taxes, the delivery of legal writs and subpoenas, the publication of all government proclamations, the incarceration of prisoners awaiting trial, the delivery of prisoners to court for trial, and the execution of sentences imposed by the various courts. By the mid-1770s, Thomas Grimble III was a well-known and well-respected member of the Charleston community. Had he continued on this path without interruption, his name would probably be much more familiar to modern South Carolinians. The commencement of the American Revolution in the spring of 1775 changed everything, however. In June of 1775, the rebellious South Carolina Provincial Congress created several regiments of a new provincial army, a full-time, uniformed force that would become part of General George Washington's Continental Army. In the summer of 1775, the nascent South Carolina Army recruited experienced officers from the existing militia system, and so Thomas Grimble, who remained in the militia, found himself due for a promotion. By the end of 1775, or perhaps the beginning of 1776, after all three of his superior officers in the Charleston Artillery Company had joined the Provincial Army, Grimble advanced from the lowest-ranking lieutenant to the rank of captain or commandant of Charleston's elite militia artillery unit. As the town prepared for an expected British naval assault in the spring of 1776, our government held out little hope of preventing enemy warships from sailing into Charleston Harbor and attacking the town directly. 
South Carolina forces were hastily building a Palmetto log fort on Sullivan's Island to harass any British ships attempting to enter the harbor. But few expected the unfinished fort to fulfill its mission. In the meantime, Captain Thomas Grimble and his crack artillery troops were assigned to protect the southern tip of the Charleston Peninsula, which would be the first target for any British warships that entered the harbor. A large fort at this site, called Broughton's Battery when it was first constructed at White Point in the 1730s, was renamed Grimble's Battery in 1776 in honor of the artillery captain in command. Against all odds, the South Carolina troops manning the unfinished Palmetto Fort on Sullivan's Island managed to drive off the British Navy on the 28th of June, 1776, and the Charleston Artillery Company at Grimble's Battery breathed a sigh of relief. At that time, two of Captain Grimble's lieutenants, named Edward Rutledge and Thomas Hayward Jr., were actually on leave in Philadelphia, where they were affixing their signatures to the Declaration of Independence that summer. Later in 1776, Thomas Grimble III was elected to represent the urban parishes of St. Philip and St. Michael in the South Carolina House of Representatives. Over the next several years of the war, Thomas maintained a very busy routine, serving as an elected politician, sheriff, militia commander, lawyer, and husband. As the war continued into the spring of 1778, the South Carolina legislature voted to enlarge the Charleston Artillery Company into a battalion of three companies. As a result of this expansion, Captain Thomas Grimble was promoted to Major Thomas Grimble of the Charleston Battalion of Artillery. From the spring of 1778 to the end of the war, Major Grimble commanded a force of three captains, nine lieutenants, 12 sergeants, 12 musicians, and more than 200 uniformed rank-and-file militiamen drawn from urban Charleston. When British troops ventured up from Georgia into lower South Carolina in early 1779, Major Grimble and his troops accompanied Governor John Rutledge on a march into the Orangeburg District in an effort to check the enemy's progress. When British troops under General Augustine Prevost closed in on Charleston in May of 1779, Major Grimble and his men scurried back to town and were posted at the Hornwork, a large, tabby fortress built in the late 1750s to guard the northern entrance to the town at what is now called the intersection of Calhoun and King Streets. The British troops under General Prevost turned back from Charleston in 1779, but the war was far from over. As South Carolina struggled to amass the resources necessary to combat the British invasion in 1779, Hundreds of citizens responded by loaning their private fortunes to the war effort. In late 1779, Thomas Grimble liquidated most of his personal estate and made two large loans to the state, one for 50,000 pounds and another for 30,000 pounds. Both of these sums were rendered in South Carolina currency, which at that time had greatly depreciated in value. According to a table of depreciation adopted by the South Carolina legislature in 1783, the value of Major Grimble's $80,000 loan to the state in late 1779 was actually equal to 2,854 pounds sterling, which in today's money would be worth nearly $400,000. 
In early 1780, British troops returned to Charleston under the command of General Henry Clinton. As they began encircling the town and constructing siege trenches, American troops under Generals Benjamin Lincoln and William Moultrie readied Charleston for a gallant defense. Major Thomas Grimble and the Charleston Battalion of Artillery were assigned to guard the Hornwork, the strategic center point of the town's defenses and the headquarters of the American command. The elevated cannon platform of the Hornwork was also the highest point of the siege lines, and Grimble's men made easy targets for the British cannon and sharpshooters as the siege commenced in early April 1780. After nearly six weeks of bombardment, the American hopes of defending Charleston gradually dimmed. In early May, Major Grimble joined the vast majority of his fellow officers in recommending the surrender of the town. When the formal surrender ceremony took place on May 12, 1780, Grimble's Battalion of Artillery was given the honor of leading the American parade of more than 5,000 troops through the gates of the Hornwork. As a member of the militia, Major Grimble was considered a prisoner on parole and was allowed to return to his home in Church Street. Three months later, however, on August 27th, British soldiers arrested Major Grimble and dozens of other militiamen on the pretense that they had been conspiring in secret to commit, quote, seditious conduct against the crown, end quote. Grimble and the others were placed on board a British prison ship in the harbor, and a week later they were transferred to another vessel that sailed for St. Augustine, Florida on September 5, 1780. For the next 10 months, Thomas Grimble was one of nearly 60 Charleston men who lived as exiled prisoners on parole in British-held Florida. Their conditions were poor and sparse, but they were given liberty to walk within a narrow range of the town. Nevertheless, after several long years of constant activity, Grimble's health began to decline. In June of 1781, the British command in Charleston announced that the British prisoners held at St. Augustine would soon be transferred to Philadelphia, where they would be liberated but not allowed to return to South Carolina. At the same time, British authorities in Charleston informed the families of the prisoners in St. Augustine that they had just over a month to evacuate the town. Accordingly, Mary Magdalene Grimble packed up a few belongings and sailed to Philadelphia to join her husband, whom she hadn't seen in nearly a year. For the rest of 1781 and all of 1782, the Grimbles lived in Philadelphia, but I haven't been able to locate any details about their activities in that city. With no income, no possessions, no savings, and no family to support them, Thomas and Mary Magdalene apparently lived on the credit of their name and reputation, but their lives must have been difficult. Thomas's health continued to decline, and the northern winters probably contributed to his worsening condition. The American victory at the Siege of Yorktown in October 1781 dashed the British hopes of quelling the rebellion, but the war wasn't over yet. Skirmishes continued after Yorktown, mostly in the southern states, but there were no further major battles. The British Army was on the back foot, and throughout the year 1782, they began withdrawing troops and resources from the United States. In the late summer of 1782, British authorities in Charleston formally announced that they would begin evacuating South Carolina, and the countdown to our liberation began.
After several months of logistical foot-dragging, British forces finally began departing from Charleston Harbor in December of 1782. At that same time, several American merchant ships in the port of Philadelphia were preparing for a voyage to Charleston. The 60-odd men who had been arrested and exiled to St. Augustine in 1780 and then exchanged to Philadelphia in 1781, along with their family members who had been banished from Charleston, were about to return to their home state. The first of the exiles sailed from Philadelphia in early December, while others had to wait until the early months of 1783 to book passage back to Charleston. It's unclear exactly when and on which vessel Thomas Grimble and his wife Mary Magdalene returned to Charleston, but it appears that they may have been among the last of the exiles to depart from Philadelphia. Perhaps they were delayed because Thomas was in poor health and Mary feared the winter's journey might sap his strength. In the early weeks of 1783, while most people were celebrating the American victory as the long war for independence concluded, the Grimbles returned home to Charleston in a shattered condition. I haven't found any documents that explain whether he sustained wounds during the brave defense of Charleston in 1780 or if he grew ill during his long period of imprisonment and exile but it's clear that Thomas Grimble was gravely ill when he returned to Charleston in early 1783. How do I know that? Because the next clue in the life story of Thomas Grimble III is his obituary. On the 1st of March, 1783, the South Carolina Weekly Gazette published the news that Major Thomas Grimble of the Charlestown Battalion of Artillery had died on the early morning of Wednesday, February 26th, just shy of his 39th birthday. Following this news is a brief obituary, which I'll share with you in its entirety. Quote, At the commencement of the war, inspired with the sacred love of his country, Major Thomas Grimble took an early part and sacrificed the greatest part of his fortune and domestic tranquility in defense of her liberties. At the surrender of this capital to the British arms, he was taken in the same, and afterwards, contrary to solemn capitulation, he was banished by a lawless banditti to St. Augustine, during which time, in the hour of his country's deepest distress, he steadfastly adhered to and never forsook her after which he was exchanged and sent to Philadelphia, and from thence had but lately returned to his native home. His remains were, on the next evening, followed by a numerous train of relations, friends, acquaintances, brother officers, and men of his battalion, and he was interred with military honors in the family vault in St. Philip's churchyard." As I said at the beginning of this program, Thomas Grimble III is not a major figure in the history of South Carolina. He was not what we might call an ordinary man, but neither was he a remarkable figure. His life story is one of many untold, interesting biographies in the long history of our state, and I think it's one worth remembering. Thomas Grimble was a talented, hard-working member of his community who sacrificed his property and his health in the effort to create the independent United States that we often take for granted today. There are, of course, a lot more details to his story, but you'll have to wait until I finish the book to hear the rest of his narrative. In the meantime, 
I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the past aboard the Charleston Time Machine. Kevin Crothers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. I'll be back on the air next week with more adventures in low country history. But if you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org or visit my blog, charlestontimemachine.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.